to turn over to Exodus, the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible and how it's laid out, if you, there, there, there are Bibles provided for you at the center of each aisle. You can grab one of those and then just barely turn it, open it, barely open it. You'll find your way to Exodus pretty quickly. Exodus is the second book in the Bible full of stories about God's grace in the life of his people, Israel. And we're going to be covering those stories together in the next few months. One of the things we do every week when we gather is, is turn to God's word and look to, to, to be shaped by it, to hear it and understand it. Uh, one of the things we believe as Christians is that God has spoken to us through the Bible, that when we go to the Bible, we can actually hear from him and that in it, we have not only the hope of the gospel offered to us that we can be other than what we were because of Jesus, but also help to know how to live in the world uh, in, in, in situations that can be complicated and, and even desperate. We can, we're going to find some of that help, Lord willing, in Exodus. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the things we try to do in order to, to come to God's word and to sit under it and to let it speak into our lives is just to take whole books that were written as units and just work through them all the way through from beginning to end so that we're covering all the bases and trying to, to make sure we're not missing anything, that we're not just picking and choosing what we like best out of the Bible. So this, this spring, or really this winter and spring, we're going to be doing that with the book of Exodus. We're not going to cover the whole book. We actually, this is, this is a case where we are going to stop about halfway through the book, uh, but we are going to be still trying to do what we do with every book that we cover, trying to see it on its terms and understand what it's trying to communicate to us. And, and to learn from it. I, I, um, I preached last week a kind of overview, big picture of what this book is about. I want to recommend that sermon to you, uh, not because it was awesome, but just because I think it'll be helpful. And it's on the website. If you didn't get to hear it last week, it can be a good sort of key to the map of what we're going to cover in the next few months together. That'll help you. Last week was, was my introduction to the book. This week's text is Exodus's own introduction to the book. The two chapters we're going to cover this morning are a brilliant sequence of events organized in such a way that the punch that it packs is just huge and unmissable. These two chapters, which which seem to have been formed as a unit to to be read together, um, they, they do a tremendous amount of work in a short space. They set the context for the whole story. They set up what's going on and, 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 and what's happening around what's going to happen in this story. They, they set up some of the main pieces and the structure of what's going to come next. They introduce key characters to us, especially guys like Moses. But, but even more important, even more important than those things that you're going to see as we work through these two chapters is a contrast that these two chapters set up for us. It's going to have a huge effect on the way the story plays out. These two chapters introduce us to a contest of wills between Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the ancient world, and God. A contest of wills over Israel and what happens to them. This, these two chapters set up that contest that's going to play out in the rest of the story. Around all the other things that we're going to see happen in these two chapters, I want to make sure you see what it tells us about each of these men and their, or about this man and this God and their agendas for Israel. Now, one thing before we get into these stories that I want to make clear, I tried to say this last week, I want to say it again now. When we're covering these stories like this, uh, what you should expect from a sermon is a little bit different than when we're covering little tiny sections of letters like we did back in the fall. If you're looking for the payoff for the what do I do with this moment, 
um, you're going to have to look a little bit harder than hopefully you did week to week in our study of 1 Peter. And in this case, in this case in particular, wait a little bit longer to get there because I'm going to save a lot of that for the end. One of the ways that we're shaped by stories like this one is just to enter into it, to see ourselves in the characters and their experiences, to see their story as becoming our story as part of God's people now, and to just live in the stories for a little bit together before we start trying to apply them. That's a way of honoring what kind of material this is and the best way to understand it. So I want to just tell you these stories this morning and and ask you to trust me that by the time we get to the end, we will have pulled some threads that are gonna be encouraging to you and try to help you see what those are. What I wanna do is, because we're covering two chapters this morning, I'm not gonna read the whole thing all at once here at the beginning. We're gonna read it as we go, but I do wanna read the introduction to it and ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read uh, the first seven verses of Exodus chapter one. And then, like I said, we're gonna work through most of the rest of the verses, not all of them, most of them as we move through our time together this morning. This is God's word to us from Exodus chapter one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is God's word. You can be seated. The verses we just read set up a lot of context that you need to know. They give us the backdrop for the the Exodus event. Israel is in Egypt. What started out as a family, relatively small family, given a shelter during a time of famine as as an act of gratitude to a member of that family who helped save Egypt from the famine, has now turned into a a massive and growing population, a nation-sized people who have grown while they were there in Egypt. The next verse from the one we read includes a statement that is huge for the rest of the story, and certainly for these next two chapters. Verse 8 says, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, a new king who had no history with him. This turn from just sort of setting the stage, here's who was there, here's how many of them there were, to Pharaoh and how he looked on Israel sets up the cascading events that come next. These verses that come next explain how Israel got into the plight that Israel was in. And I want to make sure you see it. But along the way, what I want to help you see, what I want to highlight, bring to the surface in this picture, is what I think is a pretty good breakdown of how all big-scale oppression progresses and the audacious lie that always goes hand-in-hand with it. As we see Israel's plight, what I want you to focus on is Pharaoh. And the power play he makes as the king who forgets Joseph. Step number one in Pharaoh's and I think we could say in all large-scale oppressions, the thing you have to do first is dehumanize. I just read to you that key line, the king arose who didn't know Joseph. And yeah, at one level, it's pointing us back to this backstory 
where Israel had come to Egypt because of Joseph's influence. He'd been sold there by his brothers as a slave, but God blessed him and he, he rises to power because he's useful to Pharaoh. And as, a, as Pharaoh's right-hand man, he helps make policies that protect that whole country from famine, save their lives. In the meantime, his family from wherever they were, comes to Egypt to live because there's food there. And Pharaoh says, of course your family can come and live here. You've been so kind to us. And he sets them up with a really favorable and privileged life. Partly what we're being told now is that a Pharaoh has come along who doesn't think he owes Joseph anything. That's what it means, that he doesn't know Joseph. While they had an identity there at one point, a name and a history and a place in the human story of that people. A lot of time has passed now and Joseph is gone now and his whole generation is gone and the king had been his benefactor, he's gone. And by this time, he's nothing more than a distant and fading memory. This king who comes to power doesn't owe Joseph anything. That's partly what that phrase means. But I think there's a more sinister connotation to it. I think there's a sinister connotation here you see playing out in what happens next in the story. I think there's a symbolic weight to this statement. That this Pharaoh, forgetting Joseph, losing his name, losing the human identity of this people, strips away from them their common humanity. He's defined them now as something other than him and therefore dispensable by him. He doesn't know their names anymore. Now all he sees is their numbers. I think one of the brilliant uh, features in the Orwellian dystopian book, 1984, is that they use numbers and not names. In dystopian, totalitarian state like that, you have to. They aren't people to you. They're more like cattle. You know how many you have, and you, each one of them has a number, but to you, they're not, they're not a person. Not a person like you. Step one in an oppression like the one we're going to see is to dehumanize the people you're oppressing. And that's what Pharaoh does. He forgets who they are. Step two, after you've dehumanized them, the next thing you want to do is stir up fear about them. Verse eight, Pharaoh said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. See, they're now numbers. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land see what pharaoh's doing he's doing what what any other dictator throughout history would have done stir up fear about these others it's another classic move set up an us versus them contest make it like you got no choice like you're only being wise and reasonable or perhaps even to use his word shrewd when you oppress them you got to do that first to make it easier for the people to accept what happens next. Step three, these others who you're now afraid of, step three is try to exploit them. If possible, try to take what they offer. That's what Pharaoh does first. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they made them ruthlessly work as slaves. If possible, treat the lives of those you oppress as commodities. Tap that resource. 
get something from them. That's what Pharaoh tries to do when he sets them to work building his cities and making his bricks. This work, I mean, you can get it just in a couple of, a couple of verses we just read. It was back-breaking, spirit-breaking, often life-ending work. This was a work with, that, that, that killed you eventually. Going, Pharaoh is going to use them for his purposes as long as he can. But then, step four, once you've dehumanized, stirred up fear, gotten what you can, at some point, you just dispose of them. Despite what Pharaoh is doing to make their lives unlivable, his pe- this people, the people of Israel, keeps on growing. So he hatches a plan of infanticide, population control through industrialized murder. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and set them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. When the midwives don't comply, which we'll come back to here in a minute, Pharaoh expands the order, basically gives a license to kill to anybody anywhere who sees a Hebrew baby, boy. Pharaoh commanded, verse 22, all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, which was their main river, but you shall let every daughter live. Do you see what's happening here? I think, we're, I think we're right to empathize with the people of Israel at this point and to try to imagine the fear and the outrage that they must have experienced to be treated like this, to be, to be made into nothing more than a herd of nameless and faceless livestock, treated as if they didn't have mothers that loved them or children who smile when they walked in the room or hopes of their own for their lives and what would become of them, treated like they weren't people, like we're, we're meant to empathize with them. But the focus of this story so far isn't really, not primarily, on how terrible life had become for Israel. The focus so far is on the Pharaoh who's making it all happen, who thinks himself to be in control when he's not. See, see, friends, here's what I want you to notice before we move into God's moves against Pharaoh. What you, what you need to notice here, in light of this portrait of oppression, how it works is that underneath every one of these steps Pharaoh is taking is a deeper claim that he's making, not just, not just about Israel, but about himself. What he's saying underneath every one of these steps that he takes is that these lives belong to me. I decide what these lives are worth. I decide what to do with these lives. That is his claim. It's a claim to God-like power and authority over other humans. And I want to make this quick aside before we move on. Friends, this right here, this claim, this power play that Pharaoh is making, this sort of move is at the heart of why Christians oppose oppression where we see it. It's rooted in the perspective of the Bible. Only God, we believe, has the right to claim the lives of all people. They all belong ultimately to him. No one else has that right or deserves that power. We oppose oppose oppression, in other words, not just because we value absolute freedom, not just because we value self-determination for its own sake. We oppose oppression because we believe only God deserves the service and the worship of anyone. Any other claim to that right is a claim to God's place. I wonder, friends, why do you oppose oppression? What's the foundation of it, of your opposition to it? 
Lord willing, you came here this morning against oppression like this. I pray that's true. But I wonder, have you thought why? How do you justify it? What explains why it's wrong besides the fact that it feels wrong? For Christians, it's wrong ultimately because oppression depends on a claim to the authority that belongs only to God. To define and dispense with lives as if they were yours. Now, now Pharaoh, he can't see it yet, but he's already way overextended. He thinks he's in control, but he's actually stepped into a battle that he can't yet recognize and has no hope of winning. What he's doing in opposing the growth of God's people in trying to control this population explosion is aligning himself against the purposes of God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had promised to the people of Israel that he would build them into a mighty nation, that Abraham's descendants would be like the sand on the seashore, would be like the stars in the heavens, and he's doing it right here under Pharaoh's nose. And Pharaoh is saying, no, not on my watch. He has stepped into a battle. He just doesn't see it yet. This means war. Now from here on, starting verse 15 in chapter 1 through through the end of chapter 2, what I want to do is help you see how God rises to this battle. How God makes a counter move, as one friend put it, to every move that Pharaoh has made. How he does this, first of all, without really being crystal clear that it's him doing it. You know, at first it seemed God's name is not cited very often. But how by the end of it, we'll see he was working all along. Now, what I want to do here with the few minutes we're going to spend on this next set of stories is just tell you three stories. We're not going to cover every verse here but tell you three stories that come out in these next verses and then try to help pull it all together for you at the end. First, I want to tell you the stories on their terms and then show you how God is involved in all of it and how encouraging that is for us this morning. Here's the first story that I want to make sure you notice. The first story that helps us get a picture of how God, the God who remembers, is working is the story of the midwives that we barely read and touched on here a minute ago. I want to go back to these ladies for a minute. We don't know anything about them except their names, Shifra and Pua, and the fact that they were Hebrew women. But what we learn about them here is that these women, they see exactly what's going on. Maybe even more clearly than Pharaoh does, these women are dialed in. They are on it. They know that what's happening here is a contest between the power of Pharaoh and the power of God. And they choose their side. See, what Pharaoh asks of them is for them to execute a right he thinks he has. He thinks he has the right to use these Hebrew lives as brickmakers, pawns for his agenda. He thinks he has a right to dispose of these lives when they become inconvenient for him. And once there's too many and they're an inconvenience, we're just going to get rid of them. He thinks he has that right. He's claiming that authority we've talked about that belongs only to God, but these women see that for what it is. Look what, the, look what the text says about them. They're given this command, but verse 17 says, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They knew Pharaoh was claiming something that belonged only to God and they sided with God. I know that's simple, maybe straightforward and obvious, but we need to sit with it for a second. Everything Pharaoh had done to this point was meant to crush this people into into just fine dust or clay that he could mold according to his will. He's tried to crush them. 
whatever else he's taken from these ladies. When the time comes, he could not take away their agency. When the time comes, they still have a choice to make and they make it. They choose to fear God. Fast forward a little bit into chapter two. A second story I want, I want you to see. Another choice. Another moment of truth in which God's people, despite everything they're facing, make the right choice. Chapter 2 starts with a story of one particular family. Chapter 1 has given us this big zoomed out view of the oppression of Israel as a people. It showed us what the, what the context was. And now we're zooming in with a focus on this one particular family and what they're experiencing in the chaos of Pharaoh's orders against Israel. Into this chaos, a specific child is born. To hear this story now, I want, I want you to do what you can. I know this is going to be hard, especially for those of you who are familiar with the story of Exodus, but I want you to do as much as you can here to try to hear this story as if you don't know what's going to happen in the end and, and, and feel with these characters the weight of what's happening to them. First, the child is born. We're told that a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Clearly, the child is beautiful. The parents love this child. And friends, whatever the differences, uh, no matter how many there are between parenting expectations and resources and customs from that time to our time, don't assume, no matter those differences, don't assume that these parents felt anything but the love you would feel if this were your child. Imagine that love. And then imagine the stakes. If this child is discovered, he's going to be thrown in the river. If you're discovered hiding him, you'll probably be thrown in the river too, maybe the rest of your family. Imagine living with love and fear, feeding off of one another for three months of sleepless nights and feedings and naps. I mean, just imagine keeping a little baby quiet for three hours, much less three months, and knowing that that whimper, you're not just dreading it because it means you got to get up in the middle of the night, but because it could mean death for the baby and for your whole family. And this part of the story is still the good part for them. They get three months with their child. At the end of the three months, though, the truth is unavoidable any longer. Verse 3 says, When she could hide him no more. She took a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Friends, three months is a long time to live with a baby. You know a baby intimately by then. I mean, in amongst those feedings and diaper changes, midnight soothing, you know what your baby smells like. You know his little sounds. You know what makes him cry. You know the distinctive tone that his cry takes among all the cries that are out there. You know the texture of his hair and the specific wrinkles on his skin. You know the smile that he gets when he sees you. You know him already. And you can imagine the concern of leaving your baby that you love, even with a, like a well-trained and screened babysitter, much less taking this baby that you love and putting him into a river 
in a basket that you made, like with no regulation whatsoever. You know, no one signed off. You know, I mean, when, when we found our first child, people were going down to the, I don't know if people still do this, but it was, you would go down to the fire department and make sure you put your, 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 seat in, your car seat in the car in the right way, you know? Not only did you have to buy the certified non-recalled car seat, you had to have a professional install it to make sure that it was safe. Now, now, this woman made this basket. She's the one who put the pitch on it. It all depends on her. She had no one, no quality control. And she puts her baby in it, in a river where leaks would drown him, in a place where lots of people have been given a license to kill him. Imagine what that would feel like. And now imagine you're his sister. Verse 4 tells us his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. She's left on the bank to watch what happens next. What did she feel that day? Surely this baby cried. I mean, babies don't like to be put down at all, much less into a basket into the river. Did she want to run to him? Did she want to call it all off? This is a terrible plan. We got to think of something else. Maybe we can hold out for at least one more month. Was she thinking that? I would have. I wonder how long she waited, what she was thinking. We aren't told any of that. What we are told next is that of all people, the person who hears his cries and comes down to see him is almost a worst case scenario. Now, we're told, verse five, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Get that? The daughter of the man who ordered this baby killed comes down to the river and just happens to show up right where he is. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it. Of all people, this woman. A woman raised and nurtured under the same roof where the man who ordered the murder of innocent children sleeps soundly every single night. What is she going to do? There's reason to worry given who she was, but look what she does. When she opened it, verse 6, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and not because she thought it was one of her own people, She said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. An obedient daughter would have drowned him right then and there and moved on with her bath, but not this woman. She takes pity. Then the baby's sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women? I think I know someone with good references or requisite skills to nurse the child for you. Pharaoh's daughter says, go. So the girl went off and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me and I'll give you your wages. I'll pay you to do what your heart is longing to do. Now I'm going to actually give you money for it. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I I drew him out of the water. Friends, do you see what's happened here? This child has come under the care of the only mother with the power to protect them. The river that was meant to be his destruction has become his salvation. Pharaoh made his move. Throw him in the river. His own daughter delivers the counter. And Pharaoh's undoing is going to grow up under his own roof, eating food from his own table, cared for by his own daughter. That's awesome. That's brilliant. One more story. And then I'm going to try to bring some order out of it. Moses himself the story of his coming to adulthood. We're going to fast forward a little bit now 
more quickly into one more scene. The child has now grown into a man. One day, verse 11 says, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. That's a really important phrase. See, see, this child had grown up to a man in the lap of luxury. He has lived a life of privilege and he still has a full life full of privilege out in front of him if he wants it. It's there for the taking. But for some reason, he's not settled. He's living in a kind of no man's land, I think we can, we can assume. A tension that, that many people who have moved from one place to another have felt or, or, or people who have belonged to one country and, and lived in another for a time uh, often those, the children are known as third culture kids. They, they have different identities all mixed up inside of them. And surely that's what Moses had felt. He's a Hebrew living the life of an Egyptian. Too Hebrew to feel at home there. Too much an Egyptian to go back into slavery. At least, at least he was. Then he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating, we're told, one of his people. His people. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. In that crisis moment, Moses chooses who he's with. Now, I'll admit there's, there's a little bit of kind of, maybe, maybe we'll call it moral ambiguity in this whole scene. And the fact that he has to, I mean, the fact that he has to look both ways, make sure nobody's paying attention before he kills this guy. The fact that later in the section we're not going to go through in detail, he's running away, shows that he knows that he's done something that he could get punished for. I mean, even when we were reading it together in our family earlier this week, one of the first questions I asked, asked my kids, what, what do you guys notice about this story? What's jumping out at you? And the first thing one of my sons says was, well, I mean, he didn't have to kill the guy. He could have beat him up a little bit and then and just left him, let, him, let him live. He shouldn't have done that. And I think that he's, he's on to something there. But I think what we're meant to see, what's happening inside him and through him and, and, and through him eventually to his people is that a leader is coming into his own. A man is coming to know who he is and who he's for. So that when Hebrews in the New Testament looks back on this event, in Hebrews chapter 11, which celebrates the great saints of the Old Testament, here's what it says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. We can, we can quabble with his methods if we want, but he made his choice and God would use it. God would soon meet with this favored child who would become a man who owned his people and chose to share their outcast status, we are going to see that meeting next week in chapter 3. For now, to wrap up this section, all we need to know about why this story plays out as it does comes down to the final paragraph of chapter 2. And it's exactly what we need to know to make sense of what's about to happen. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. He would be replaced by another pharaoh, just as cruel as he was, but for now he's died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up 
to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. This paragraph sets up everything that's coming. And it speaks back into what's been happening all along to this point. Think about this paragraph as the simple but profound linchpin for the whole book. The king who ruled over Egypt had forgotten Joseph. He didn't know him. But God remembered his covenant, saw everything, and God knew. What do we do with this story? I want to send you out with three simple takeaways that I think are true to the story, set us up for what's still to come, and can encourage us with whatever it is we're facing right now. What do we do with it? Here's number one. Remember, friends, that their story, Israel's story, Israel's story in Egypt, and your story right now is held together by the memory of God. Their story looks like a story of discontinuity, of a life and, and, and prospects gone off the rails. But what we see here in the light of this paragraph is that that's not true. We know it's a story with a past. I mean, the whole book begins with an and. It doesn't come through in the translation here, but it's, it's carrying on with what Genesis had said. But, but what kind of story will it be? Will it be a story of a fall from favor, of a life off the rails, of a beautiful what was turned into a nightmare what is? That's what it seems like. And maybe that's what your life seems like to you for now, where things are only going from bad to worse. Maybe you know that sequence all too well. But friends, this story is a story that continues, that moves forward, that holds together because God remembers what he said, what he's promised to them and to you. He hasn't moved on. Whatever else is happening, he hasn't moved on and he's faithful. That's what we're meant to take from this story. Here's a second thing. Remember that their story and yours is guided by the hand of God. Their story, Israel's story and your story is guided by the hand of God. Here's what I mean by that. Think about the plight of these people, these Hebrew people. It's continuing. Even while all these pieces are falling into place, even though the, the, the midwives make the choice that they make and the population growth continues, even though Moses' parents courageously do what they did and Moses is given birth, even though Moses makes his choice and goes out only to come back and lead them, even though God is doing all this stuff, they don't see any of it. It's all behind the veil for them. All they know is that their backs are breaking, that they don't think they can go on, that the only move they have left is a groan. For this people, everything looks terrible. And their future seems to be slipping away. And surely any one of them who remembered what they'd been told about the God of their fathers would have wondered, perhaps in anger, where are you now? What are you doing? And it's true, friends, that God is not seen on the surface of this story. But can't you see all these counter moves? Can't you see how clearly these stories are pointing us to God's work? These midwives of all people standing up to the most powerful man in the world, in their world. This baby put into a river, recovered by the one who should have wanted him dead most of all, who then decides to keep him and protect him and to use his own mother to do the work. 
what we're being told here is that, that these are not random coincidences. That even though God's name is not invoked often, even though his work is happening behind what they can even see, he is working. And their story is guided by his hand. That means we should never assume that we're seeing everything that's going on, everything that God's doing. They couldn't see it. We can't see it. But he sees, he knows, and he's working. Here's the last thing. Remember, friends, that their story and yours is founded on the personal love of God who identifies with the needs of his people. Their story, your story in Christ, is founded on God's love that drives him down to you to identify with you as his own. There's going to be a lot of ground to cover in this book, a lot of stories of power, of longing, of fear, of frustration, stories of resilience and forgiveness and intermountable odds overcome. We're going to see judgment. We're going to see commands. But, but friends, beneath it all, with everything else we're going to see, beneath it all is one grounding thing. God knows. God sees the pain of his people. It registers with him and he takes it personally. In other words, if Joseph being forgotten was Pharaoh pulling back from this people as a people, detaching, disidentifying, then what we see in God knowing is the opposite movement. He stays close. He enters in. He makes our pain his own. Here in this story, he sends Moses. One day he'll send his own son to fully and completely identify with the suffering of his people and to lead them out of it by his death and resurrection. I want to leave you with one of my favorite passages about Jesus and his work that makes especially uh, sweet the story we've just considered from Exodus. It's again in the book of Hebrews, which looks back to the Old Testament a lot to explain who Jesus is and why he matters. Listen to the way Hebrews chapter 2 ends. This is talking about the work of Jesus. Think about the story we've just heard and the promise that God knows. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Does that sound familiar? For it is not the angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Does that sound familiar? Therefore he, God's own son, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see what he's saying there? He knows us. He's been there. He understands everything we go through. He did that on purpose so that he could help us. This is the God who knew. Jesus comes from the same place that Israel's hope comes from in this story of Exodus. And this is who God is, no matter what you're facing now. The God who knows, who remembers, who identifies with you at great cost to himself and who's promised to save you. Let's pray that he'll help us to trust in him. Father, we want to believe you. We want to believe what your word has said. We have no more innate ability to do that than Israel did, though. 
And we are constantly tempted to judge your love and faithfulness based on what seems most vivid and present to us now rather than what you've been for us in the past or what you've promised to do for us in the future. We know that we can't hold on to faith in your goodness and nearness unless you hold on to us. And so we ask you to. In Jesus' name, amen.